Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray, and my co-host, Ellen McGirt, is missing all the fun today. But I'm excited about today's guest. She's Lynn Good, the CEO of Duke Energy. Duke delivers electricity to nearly 8 million customers in the Southeast and Midwest, also natural gas to over 1.5 million more. Duke is number 126 on the Fortune 500. And with the increasing focus on climate change, it's coming from government, it's coming from investors, it's coming from customers, it's coming from employees, it's a really tough time to be running an energy company, particularly one that depends significantly on coal-fired plants. Lynn has had the job since 2013, so she brings some good perspective to how the push for sustainability has grown over time and what it's going to mean for her business. And that's where we're going to start the interview. So I remember back 2005, 2006, you were talking about the importance of adapting to climate change. Your predecessor, Jim Rogers, famously said that if you're not at the table, you may be on the table, uh, which I thought was a great way of putting it. But I have to ask you, I mean, I have a sense that what's happening this year is so much more intense in terms of the focus from investors, the focus from employees, and the focus from consumers. And I wonder if you're feeling the same thing. Alan, it's a great observation and uh, appreciate your recognition of the journey that Duke Energy has been on. Uh, environment has been front and center for us for some time, and certainly carbon has been front and center for us. And we come, we sit here today with a 40% carbon reduction from 2005 in a way that has been uh, quite remarkable using the new technologies, the renewables, retiring coal, et cetera. But I think your observation about the building, the crescendo, if you will, around the discussion, I believe is true. And we have felt it coming, not just in 2021, but really dating back into 20, maybe even 19, 18, as we heard more from communities, more from customers, more from the states, our policymakers, our regulators, and certainly under the Biden administration with his thought that climate needs to be a whole of government approach, it certainly has raised the conversation. Now, you've still got a fair amount of electric power that's generated by coal-fired plants. And there are people out there who will look at that and say, well, why? I mean, just shut them down. Why do we have to have coal-fired plants given today's problems? What's your answer? Coal represents about 20% of the energy that we produce, Alan. Uh, and we see it being less than 10% by 2030 and perhaps even closer, um, you know, further below 10% by then. And the question is, how do we replace those assets? What alternatives are we using? What is the right time frame to maintain a focus not only on achieving environmental results, but affordability and reliability? There is no single solution to this. There's no obvious one form of technology. It's going to be a diverse supply. And so at my present state, I've retired 52 coal units. Well, that's I'm good. on <laughs> Yes, I'm on path to retire more. And we're working through this in a way that is quite deliberate, achieving environmental results, achieving carbon reduction, but also keeping an eye on affordability and reliability. 
our customers count on all of those things. And finding that right balance is what we're working to do and working closely with stakeholders and policymakers to accomplish that. When do you think you will get to zero on coal? So it'll depend by geography, Alan. And I think geography is important in that not every state has the same degree of renewable resources. Some are blessed with great wind. You think about the mid-continent region being blessed with wind. Here in the Southeast, we're blessed with solar. And so coal will be out of the picture in the Carolinas sooner than it will be out of the picture in Indiana, for example. Indiana is a coal state and has had more generation from coal over a longer period of time. But we believe the right metric is the trend line that we're moving to reduce the carbon emissions, finding the right solutions to do that. And we're committed to moving as quickly as we can, as quickly as policymakers and regulators will permit. In some of our states, we still have a low cost standard that uh, has to be observed as we think about changing out resources. And we're in conversations in all of our states to, to find the way forward. So I totally understand and appreciate your reluctance to give a specific date. But I wonder, just in a broader framework, more and more businesses are committing to specific dates. I mean, the number of companies this year that have come out with plans to get us to net zero by 2050 is stunning. Uh, and 2050 is still a long way away, but it's only three decades. So I wonder if you think that is a reasonable goal as somebody who is really in the energy industry and understand how it works. Can we get to zero emissions in three decades? Duke is one of those companies that has made a specific commitment to targeted carbon reduction. So our commitment is to be at at least 50% reduction by 2030 and net zero by 2050. We have a clear line of sight on how to get to 2030. It's retiring more coal to the point made a moment ago. It's adding more renewables, battery storage, pursuing second license renewal on nuclear adding some natural gas where reliability is particularly important. It's always important, but you know, given the mix of other resources. And for us to get to net zero, we have been very forthright, done a lot of homework on this. We believe we need technologies that are not at commercial scale today. So I'm thinking about low carbon fuels like hydrogen. I'm thinking about carbon capture technologies, advanced nuclear with storage facilities storage capability, or a battery solution or storage solution that gives you the chance to store energy over longer periods than just a few hours. Yeah. Those are the types of things that we need to get to net zero. When you get to kind of 70 or 80% carbon reduction in the bulk power system and you start pulling all remaining fossil fuels out, we find that we're looking for a technology that doesn't exist today. Yeah. So we are actively advocating for R&D and have had very good conversations. I believe President Biden recognizes that. You see that in some of his um, you know, objectives, uh, investment in research and development and clean technology. We think that's important. I want to come back to the R&D question in a minute. But let me ask you first, is there any conflict between your 2030 goal, 50% by 2030, and your 2050 goal? For instance, you could replace coal plants with natural gas plants, and that could get to your 50% reduction goal, but it's not necessarily going to help you get to your zero goal. We do believe natural gas is a bridge fuel, a bridge to a new technology, basically. And it's less about the fuel natural gas and more about the operating characteristics. 
It is something that can ramp quickly. It's something that fits well with an intermittent renewable. And so when I talk about things like hydrogen, blending of hydrogen with natural gas, lowering carbon, when I talk about carbon capture, those are technologies that would be quite complementary to natural mm. gas. Mm. And so, you know, we have looked at this closely, and I believe every natural gas plant that is looked at in the 20s will be looked at in this way. And you're thinking about a 20 to 25-year life. You're also looking at the potential viability of those technologies. But those are questions that we'll just really have to wrestle with, as will our policymakers. Yeah, if I hear you correctly. So to the extent that you invest in new natural gas plants, you hope to do it in a way that they can accommodate cleaner fuels when they're available. Absolutely. That is absolutely correct. And I believe if you talk to the manufacturers of gas turbines, they are already moving in that direction. Some of them have pilot technologies now that can accommodate quite substantial amounts of hydrogen blending. We are looking on working on pilot projects to do the same. So those technologies, I think, could be quite beneficial if you can use existing infrastructure. Think about the cost to customers if you have an opportunity to use some of your existing infrastructure with cleaner resources. Yeah. So let's go back to the R&D question. I mean, so many interesting pieces to that puzzle. Battery technology is critical. Can you make uh, hydrogen fuels in a energy efficient matter? You know, a lot of big questions on the table. As a utility, what can you do to further that R&D? Do you have your own money set aside to do it? Is it more of a question of advocating or or committing to install once the breakthroughs happen? How do you push that forward? Alan, the expertise we bring to this conversation is one of understanding how the bulk power system works. So we have great operating experience. And so we are doing a combination of advocating but also working with the national labs, working with other technologists. So I would think of us as uh, subject matter experts on the production of power, the reliability. We have engineers specifically devoted to new technologies who are working with how we can pilot them, how we can serve in an advisory or operating advisory capacity so that we not only understand the technologies, but we begin to invest at the right time to help those technologies scale. So I have, you know, people who work technology every day in that context. Yeah. So I want to what you and I have been talking about for the last few minutes here is how how your company and more and more companies are really kind of focusing their superpowers on what they can do to get us to a net zero future. But I wonder how important public policy is in this. I I mentioned your predecessor, Jim Rogers, who in 2005, 2006, he was advocating a cap and trade system that the government would impose on the U.S. economy. There was talk about carbon taxes. A lot of that seems to have gone away. I mean, can private industry do this on its own? And if not, how big a role does government have to play? I believe we've made great progress, Alan, over the last many years, getting to 40% reduction without policy. But I am a believer that federal policy can be helpful to take us from here to where we need to go. And there's a lot of discussion today around something called a clean energy standard, this was uh, has been introduced in the House in a couple of different forms. It has been considered in the concept of infrastructure. And basically what it does is it establishes a target by 2030, so much either clean energy or so much carbon reduction, so you get both a target and a timeline. And I believe that kind of clarity on policy is incredibly powerful. 
because it helps us with how to deploy capital, how soon to retire, permitting, gives you a timeline on how to get some of this uh, important infrastructure permitted. It gives you a clear understanding of how to move forward. And so I think a clean energy standard could be very helpful to the conversation. Of course, there's a lot of detail associated with that, but if it incents generation transition, incents investment in the delivery system to accommodate all these new things, and if it provides a way for more research and development investment, I think all of those could be quite powerful. I'm here with Joe Yukazoglu, who is the CEO of Deloitte US and had the good sense to sponsor this podcast. Thanks, Alan. Pleasure to be here. Something big seems to be going on in the world of business. There's a shift from a focus on shareholders to a focus on stakeholders. I'm hearing this everywhere. Why is it happening? This is a realization that if you effectively serve a broad cross-section of stakeholders, that's actually conducive to generating a premium return for shareholders. This is not an either or. Maybe in the short term, one could prioritize profits at the expense of other constituents, but in the long term, you have to align those interests to deliver premium shareholder returns consistently. A lot of people I talk to want to know, is this real or is this just a public relations exercise? This is being built into the core of leading companies' strategies, and you're seeing the landscape shift drastically. Views from leading investors around the way in which this is driving capital allocation decisions, very tangible climate commitments from many large organizations, and a very significant interest from our employee base around their desire to make certain that the organization they work for aligns with their values. Joe, thanks for being with us. Alan, it's a real pleasure. I want to change the subject a little bit and talk about cybersecurity because we had this very scary ransomware attack on colonial pipelines in the energy space. And it sort of raised the prospect that our energy infrastructure could be the subject of future cyber warfare, that somebody could take it down either for uh, geopolitical reasons or perhaps for profit. Uh, how worried are you about that? Cybersecurity is front and center for every energy infrastructure company, certainly for Duke Energy, Alan. We have been operating under very robust mandates and standards from the federal government for some time. And I'm talking about the electric you know, system and increasingly natural gas and natural gas pipeline structure uh, infrastructure is falling under those same requirements. We take this responsibility very seriously. We understand the implication to our customers and communities. And so there has been a lot of work accomplished in information sharing and in partnering in the industry, engagement with the federal government, a lot of investment in defense, a lot of investment in you know, awareness campaigns among our employee base on the importance of the role we play. Every one of us could provide a pathway into our systems if we're not exercising good cyber hygiene. And then we drill as an industry. We simulate uh, cyber attacks and physical attacks on the bulk power system and actually do some role playing on how we're going to recover and what it would take to do that. So I would, I would paint a picture for you of vigilance around this issue, but also recognition that it's a threat that is quite significant and it will require continued vigilance and investment on the part of industry and continued partnering 
with the federal government agencies. And that's, uh, that's the posture that we're in. And we take things like Colonial Pipeline as an opportunity to learn more. What happened there and uh, could it happen somewhere else? It is a top, top issue for this industry. You have an activist investor, Elliott Management, in your stock, wants to break Duke into three different pieces for your different geographies, is also arguing that doing that would make it easier for you to focus on the long-term environmental challenges. What's your response and what do you do about an attack like that? We, uh, we're always open to ideas and discussion with our shareholders, Alan. We take that very seriously and we have been engaged with Elliott Management. I think the idea of breaking up the company we don't agree with, we responded to that quite strongly, just a host of issues associated with breaking up a company that we believe has more likelihood of destroying value than creating value. And I believe our investors at large, those who follow us closely, our states, policymakers, et cetera, agree with that position. Hmm. And so, you know, we continue to be open to ideas and focus really on how we can create long-term shareholder value. And we believe we're doing that and can continue doing that by pursuing this clean energy transition that you and I have been talking about. So Duke has about $60 billion targeted over the next five years, $125 billion over the decade, largely focused on clean energy transition. The company is positioned to grow at 5 to 7% and believe we have a very strong investor proposition with that growth story. There was a day not so long ago when activist investors would have been saying to you, hey, stop talking about the environment, just make us money, please, right? Uh, I mean... That's one of the things that's changed pretty dramatically uh, in the last year, this attack on on Exxon being the most dramatic one. A, a, an activist won three seats on the board of Exxon, a big change in investor pressure. Do you get the sense that, that Elliot is serious about the energy transition? Their approach up to this point, Alan, has been more focused on breaking maybe a more traditional commercial company breakup. And I think what's maybe a bit different for Duke Energy is we own 95% regulated all the same things. So the ability to break that up and create real value is not as lucrative as perhaps a company that has two very disparate businesses that might trade at an additional value. But I think your focus on ESG uh, and your comments about how the investment community at large is focused on ESG is absolutely the case. And we have been engaged probably for the better part of 10 years because of the environmental footprint. We started with environment, have continued that discussion. The climate reports, sustainability reports, our clear targets, our demonstrated actions are just front and center with our investors. And then that conversation, of course, has expanded into social and governance issues, as you know, as well. And so we keep a keen eye on that. And it is so integrally linked with the strategy of our company. We actually think about it as what we do every day as opposed to a separate initiative. Hmm. Lynn, one of the things that's changed in the last couple of years in terms of the way CEOs behave, in my perception as a journalist, is just much more uh, speaking out on hot topics many of them politically or socially controversial. And you, of course, are based in North Carolina. That was home of one of the first hot topics, the bathroom bill that limited access uh, by transgender people to public bathrooms. But what I really, and voting access, of course, is a very hot issue today. But as a CEO, how do you 
think about when it's appropriate for you to speak out and when you should keep your mouth shut? It's a really good question, Alan. And I would say we're finding our way on this. I think most CEOs are, because to your point, there has been a movement in the direction of responding to current events and, and social issues. And I hope we have done it thoughtfully and that we will continue to do that. But we try to use some guiding principles around how it impacts our region, how it impacts our employee base, our stakeholders. And frankly, will our voice matter in the conversation? And how does that land in the context of the other important issues in front of the company? So we look at each of them individually. I actually have a council of folks in the company that I talk to. Our board is very interested in this. And uh, we don't comment on everything, but we will comment from time to time and try to do so in a thoughtful way. Yeah. Let me ask you more broadly. I mean, you've been in this job now for eight years, I guess, 2013, right? I know, almost. Is that unbelievable? <laughs> it is unbelievable. I mean, that, dog that, years. <laughs> you're you're one of the the longest tenured CEOs these days. You know, you're a you're a veteran. So, if you look at that period, if you look at those eight years, how has the job changed over that period? I mean, some of the things we've already referred to, but I'd love to get your thoughts on what are the top differences in being a CEO today compared to eight years ago when you started? Well, I think we've talked about a couple of them, Alan, but I would step even further back and say just the pace of change, I would say, is even greater than what I would have experienced in 2013. And I thought it was changing a lot then. (laughs) But uh, I operate in an industry under transformation. I need to deliver power 24 hours a day, every day, every season, reliably and perfectly. And at the same time, I need to change out almost every generating asset I own, Mm. with the exception of nuclear, and build new. And I need to do that in an affordable way. And I can't allow a blip in reliability. And I have to hit certain targets around, you know, achieving carbon reduction. And I have a broad range of stakeholders who are engaged in that conversation, from employees to customers, policymakers, to environmental community, solar developers, environmental justice, low income, and, you know, and trying to figure out how to knit all of that together in a way that moves not only the state forward, but the company forward, just also adds, um, adds a flavor of stakeholder engagement and community engagement that is greater than it would have been 10 years ago. I actually think it'll make us better. Because to the point you were making a moment ago, what I invested in the 2020s, I want to be proud of in the 2030s and 2040s. So bringing people together on those investment decisions, I think, hopefully will make us better. But I would point to pace of change as a key differentiator. Yeah, both pace of change and scope of responsibility. I mean, I listened to you describe the job and it sounds like almost impossible. But I I wonder if I can ask you personally, what do you do to, (laughs) to keep your sanity? Where do you get your breaks? How do you center yourself? I think one of the things that comes with experience is understanding what's a small thing and what's a big thing and having advisors around you and talking to people on the ground to try to understand that. Because if every little brush fire was treated like a you know wildfire, this would be uh, even more difficult than it is. But I also try to keep a healthy attitude about this, some optimism about the future. I'm surrounded by great people. I try to take care of myself, exercise, sleep, read something for pleasure, eat good food, enjoy time with family. And it's finding that balance, that combination of things to keep 
the fuel for the work going. Well, Lynn Good, keep at it. You maybe have another decade ahead of you as CEO. <laughs> I'm not sure about that, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you, at least, for spending some of your time uh, with us. Really interesting challenges in the year years ahead, and we'll be watching. Great. Thank you so much. A pleasure to talk with you. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala, written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. 